This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. There are stories we tell that are safe because they can be tied up with a ribbon. There's a clear beginning, a middle, and an end. And there are also stories that we tell that are terrifying because there's no resolve. The story is currently being written and the narrator oftentimes feels exposed and vulnerable. It's easier to tell stories like the former and a lot harder to tell stories like the latter. But that doesn't make them any less important. I believe that Jody Attenberg is one of those courageous people who have chosen to make an impact by telling her story while it's currently unfolding. And I'm humbled that she decided to share it on the show today. Jody Attenberg is a Canadian ex-lawyer who later discovered her passion for food and travel. On her award-winning website, Legal Nomads, she's helped people all over the world to explore the world around them, not with fear and suspicion, but with an open-minded curiosity and compassion. Through the years, Jody's writing has been featured and recognized by the world's top publications like The New York Times, BBC, National Geographic, The Guardian, CNN, and Bloomberg. Jody is a big deal. It's now been a year since she made the transition from being a full-time lawyer to being a full-time traveler. And this year, because of a crazy unfortunate turn of events involving a spinal tap and a number of other things, Jody is left wondering if she'll ever be able to live her life of travel and food again. This story is wild and it is heartbreaking and it's the story of a loss of a dream, an idea, and loss of momentum and there's beauty and heartbreak inside of it it's it's a difficult story because it doesn't resolve but oh my gosh jody is just incredible and for the very first time jody is sharing her story on a podcast since the turn of events that has changed her life forever and i'm so honored to be hosting her today I am Brandon Harvey, and this is Sounds Good. This is the weekly podcast where we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. Jody fully embodies these ideas and everything that this show is about. So let's just jump straight into our conversation. So I get pretty constructive criticism every once in a while, and it always hurts me to be like, oh my gosh, they're critiquing this thing that I made. They're critiquing this thing that that really means a lot to me. And then I realize the worst thing would be somebody who hated something I created, and then they just unfollowed, never said anything. At least this person who's kind of criticizing me, they're giving me the opportunity to grow and to learn. And that that's always like a really, really helpful Once I started thinking about it in that way, it helped me not feel like resentful or angry. It was like, this person's trying to help me. Even though they like disagree with something I'm doing, they're trying to help me. Yeah, I think that's the most charitable way to look at it. You think, and that works for everything, right? You can transpose that outward for a lot of the ways that we can receive information. And there's just, um, it can take such a negative impact on the body and on the mind to assume that everything's done with ill intent, right? I mean, there's, there's a wider discussion there as well about society. Um, so the way that you're deciding to approach it is, I think, the healthiest way. I mean, you've been running internet stuff for more than a decade now. Legal Nomads is what, more than 10 years old now? Yes, yeah, hard to believe. April That's 1st, wild. 2008 is when I actually left uh, New York from my cushy law job. Uh, I quit only a few weeks prior. I think if I did it all over again, I'd probably have given myself a few more weeks to come down (laughs) from the chaos. But at that point, I was like, every subway ride to work was just me listening to music and dreaming of travel. So I just couldn't wait. Really? And so, okay, how long were you a lawyer then? Uh, About five and a half years. Okay. And what got you into that whole world of things? Because, And I guess even more than that, 
how quickly did you fall out of love with it? Well, it's actually not the story it sounds like it is. And I think that's sort of interesting for me because if I heard, if I saw sort of my fact pattern, I would say the same that, okay, you must have burnt out as a lawyer, just gotten tired of it. But actually what happened is I never wanted to be a lawyer. I went to law school because someone bet me I couldn't get in. And I went (laughs) really young. I was um, 18 when I applied. I didn't do an undergrad um, in Quebec. They take a few people and and kind of um, rope them into being with... uh, There's no pre-law. It's just you're dumped in with everyone else at McGill. It was like a pilot program that's now still in, in the school. They've kept it. So you know, I was a kid and then there were everyone else, the average age of my class, I think was 26. But because I was also a Quebec resident, there was no exorbitant tuition. And I often say in interviews, it's really important to remember that part of why I was able to save up to quit and then, you know, leverage that into a new career was because I didn't have the debt. And then unfortunately, a lot of Americans would come out of law school with having. So I was recruited from law school to a job in New York. And at first, they were like, I think you got your date of birth wrong. You must have made a mistake. That that nine <laughs> is a six. And I was like, actually, it's kind of a nine. And it was an adventure. I definitely worked 90 hours a week. I think in my first year as a lawyer, I billed 3,000 hours. So it's way, way less hours than you're actually at the office is what you're billing um, in 11 months. And then I basically took a, a month-long or three-week-long trip to China after the deal closed. So for me, it was... I never really wanted to be a lawyer. I figured it was a great degree. It taught me a way of thinking. Once I got in so young, I thought it would just be an interesting education. And in Canada, it's just a very different... The school focused a lot more on the philosophy. Uh, not It's not um, the same as, as an American school. It was interesting to compare that to my American colleagues when I was coming out of McGill and starting in New York. You know, my first day of property class, they were talking about, like, do we have the right to own private property? And my American colleagues were like, they, they did what? You talked about what? Um, so I think it's just, it was just a very philosophical approach to the law. And, and when I got a job in New York, I figured, you know, I'm going to take it and, and save some money and then figure out what's next. And I, I quit my job thinking it would be a one-year sabbatical. I had seen a, a documentary about the Trans-Siberian trains, and I'd always wanted to go to Lake Baikal as well. And, um, and is, that in, is that in Russia? In Siberia, yeah. Okay. I had a bit of a Siberian problem. There's also this beautiful <laughs> stone called Shadowit that's like only found there that I had seen at a gem. Montreal has a huge gemstone festival in, in uh, Palais de Congrès downtown. And as a kid, my stepdad would always take me in. I was like obsessed with a stone that kind of looks like amethyst and granite had a baby. And of course, it was from Siberia. And I was like, all right, I just, I guess I'm going to Siberia. And so the, the impetus for the trip was really these trains that I was obsessed with and the story of how they were built and how crazy it was to build them in this like dis- just totally desolate landscape um, as an act of like political craziness. And then I just figured, well, why not just make it a year trip around the world? And at that point, there were very few people doing that. And there were very few blogs writing about it. Um, so I kind of scoured the ones that were out there and I started my own site mostly to keep my family updated. I really had to be like, Hey, I'm still alive. I'm not dead. Zero plans to make it a business. Did not travel with a laptop, did not take copious notes, wrote from internet cafes. Dang. Still had my Blackberry because I planned to come back (laughs) (laughs) and be a lawyer again. And, and now is now it's 10 years later. You just never came back. Yeah. What happened was partly that so what, because I was a lawyer and, and the last, the first few years I did M&A and securities work and, and corporate law in a big firm, and I switched to doing new media work and privacy stuff and endorsement guidelines and things that are relevant, you know, to anyone online. In my second law firm job, I was like, I'm never taking any advertising or sponsored content on the site because I just negotiated a metric ton of ad contracts and I'm like, I'm over the entire thing. I'm just not doing it. <laughs> um, and so I think... When I started the site out too, it was just never even, I wasn't trying to make any money off of it. It was more, I had my savings. They were used way more slowly than I thought because I'd never been to Southeast Asia. So by the time I got there and discovered that street food was my spirit, everything, (laughs) I was just so excited to (laughs) find myself. As a kid, apparently I told my parents I didn't want bread for breakfast, which, you know, now I'm, as I'm diagnosed with celiac, Maybe my body just knew, but 
I was just like, why aren't we having rice for breakfast? My mom's like, we just, we just don't, we don't eat rice for breakfast, Jody. And I got to Asia and I was like, I found where they eat rice for breakfast. I'm not coming home. Uh, so I basically started writing longer form for the family. At no point was there any consideration of more. And I got a, a request from CNN to travel, then CNN Go in Bangkok, if I would be interested in writing a few pieces for them. They found some of the stuff I had written. And that was in 2010. So it was already two years because my money went a lot further than I thought my budget. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> This, this thing can actually be a real thing. And it just sort of went from there. Um, I wanted over the years to make it clear that as my readers grew, the first comment I got that wasn't my mother, I was very confused at how anyone would ever have come across. Apparently someone had posted my blog on Boots and All uh, forums in 2008. And funny enough, the, few, the first few comments were other people who were, who were travel bloggers who've become really, really good friends. It's really a delight to look back. There's something kind of magical about that era of like 2000, almost like around 2010, where it was, you really could meet a lot of people because all these internet communities were so small that it was the first opportunity to meet people who were similar to you, who didn't live in the same area as you. For sure. And Twitter as well. You know, it's yeah. um, when I joined Twitter, I joined it in 2009 because a friend who I, a guy who I met on a volcano on my 30th birthday <laughs> in Indonesia I climb a mountain usually on my birthday every year and that year I climbed three because I was turning 30 and I met him on one of them he's, he's become also a very good friend he's like you send these awesome links out and when I was a lawyer I would aggregate links of the day and send them out at the end of the day and they were like mostly astronomy and science and technology and I just, you know, was trying to keep myself sane in a job that I wasn't thrilled to be in. And he was like, this is your links, but in real time, you should just join Twitter and share that stuff there. And it never occurred to me like, oh, I'm, I'm writing about travel. And, and so I should share only travel links. I'm like, I'm a multifaceted person like everyone else. I'm going to share what's interesting. And so I ended up coming across, you know, tons of journalists who Twitter was less crowded and was able to say, you know, I'm in your city now. Can we meet for coffee? I, I don't think that's as possible anymore. Yeah. And to your point, there was something so lovely about this nascent ability to just slide in sideways into a new industry or place and meet these great thinkers and learn from them and hopefully share I don't know, fun travel stories that made them feel they were worth the meeting as well. Totally. Um, but it was wonderful. Wow. So you kind of take on this new life as somebody who is traveling full time and uh, eating rice from the street full time. <laughs> um, and you mentioned earlier that you, uh, you're celiac. At what point did you know, you, like do, at the beginning of your travels, were you celiac or did that evolve? Um, no, I was diagnosed quite some time ago. I mean, I joke before it was sexy to be gluten-free, but <laughs> I, it's not. It's a joke, but it's not because obviously there are a lot of people who had no idea that they were celiac and they were just eating stuff that was getting them sicker. Yeah. Um, for me, I was, I think there was a lot less information about it. I was diagnosed quite young. I was very much in denial about it and very much, I, I damaged my body by not taking it as seriously uh, and was always independent and traveling alone. So I had no parents to be like, what are you doing to yourself? So it wasn't until I have a story on the site, actually from, from Siberia, of course, I went to see a doctor there uh, and the, I hired a guy to take me and I was having these crazy issues on the trains, getting sicker. And she didn't, this is, she didn't know anything about my life other than I had a cough that wouldn't go away when I laid down. And she basically was a Tibetan doctor and she, she said in, you know, obviously through the translator, something's wrong with her stomach. And he said, yeah, she's not here for that. She's here for a cough. And she said, ask her what's wrong with her stomach. She goes, he said, is there something wrong with your stomach that you know, but are not doing? <laughs> <laughs> and, and this was like a few, I mean, I was at that point I had come, you know, through Russia and definitely not eating what I should be eating and, and suffering for it because there's a lot of wheat there. And I said, Oh, yeah, I have this disease, but I, I haven't really been getting as sick. And she said, you will be dead in 10 years, oh. if you don't pay attention. And of course, it's someone I haven't met. She had previously just given me my entire family history without me telling her anything. She said, oh, on your father's side, you have these things on your mother's side, you have these things. 
and she was dead on for all of it. Oh my and, gosh. and I was so freaked out that I just, it just scared me straight, really, like in terms of the <laughs> diet. I was like veering off course and it put me right back on that straight line of this is something I really need to stop messing around with. So through my foolishness, I'm sure I did considerable damage to my intestines, uh, but that basically got me back where I needed to be. And since then, I've been not only extremely strict, but have tried to help other celiacs who feel like their life is kind of over in terms of travel, understand that there's a way for them to do it. Um, I got into a Twitter spat with someone who was just like, you obviously don't take your disease very seriously if you travel. And I was like, what? Uh, well, I mean, I, I think I do now take it very seriously. What do you mean? And he would, he basically said he never left the house. He never left the house to eat. He only went out when he didn't have to eat. And he was like, you know, the trace amounts of gluten that you can be exposed to in your lifetime can still aggregate and kill you. So he'd rather just eat at home. And I was like, with all due respect, you know, this is after what has happened now has happened. And I know we'll get into that, I'm sure. Um, and so I was like, with respect to my life now, I'm very grateful I led the life I led. But also there's, there's something about the psychology of it. You're locking yourself in your house. There are many other things that could get killed. You, you can get hit by a bus tomorrow, you know? And you're, you're taking all the enjoyment out of your life because of these fears. And so I just, I really wanted to help celiacs feel like they were empowered to travel, having tools to do that. Uh, and so I built all these guides. Instead of saying, here's where you should eat, there is some section, some guides have that exactly that. But for the most part, I went through every single dish in each country and what was safe and what wasn't and what ingredients were in it because the goal was, okay, they can go to a menu and now know what's safe or not. It was about empowering them with the information that they may not otherwise know to look for instead of just go to this restaurant because they're not getting as much of a cultural experience if they're only going to specific gluten-free places. Yeah. And I, I love this idea of you creating tools that help people uh, not be fearful and help people live their lives despite fear or without fear. And I would imagine that you know, maybe one of the reasons that you started your blog was to remind people that like, hey, you're safe and, you know, they don't need to be fearful for you. Um, and that in many ways, you probably encountered a number of other things over the course of a decade of traveling the world that many people would be fearful of. But, you know, when you confront it head on, you realize this is pretty normal. What were, I guess, what are some of the ups and downs of travel and how did fear interact with that? I think, I mean, as a woman, it's definitely different as an experience to travel alone, uh, both because of how you're always told to be worried and, you know, because of just the, the realities of some cultures being different in terms of whether women are allowed in that place to, to be alone, to be wandering around by themselves, to be traveling by themselves. For the most part, I think, you know, I, I try very hard to, to, to tell people that I was terrified too. It would be absolutely reckless of me to pretend like I wasn't <laughs> because everyone is and should be this whole Superman idea. I know there's, there's a whole culture of vulnerability now, thanks to great work from people like Brittany Brown and Amber Ray. But I think there's still a lot of Superman syndrome online. And I always say it's really important to to people when I, when I do workshops about writing or, or how they want to perceive their own brands in retrospect online, what are the narrative loops that you really want to make sure people digest? Because it's important for you to feel comfortable that who you are as a person and who you're showing yourself to be online isn't a big gap. Like that's the, the fastest way for you to become unhappy with the work that you do. So for me, I talk about how I was really anxious before I left New York and I would be up all night freaking out about how I would figure out where to stay and what to do. And I didn't have plans and I was anxious about the food as well and how to be safe about it. And I think, you know, there, are, there are some things that are quirks. Like I wrote about, um, learning how to sail because I almost drowned as a kid. And that was something that was hugely fearful for me, but through our own fears, I think there's such a wonderful, opportunity to help people manage theirs. And even if the fact pattern isn't the same, it's easy to look at someone else struggling through something that's really nebulous and say, okay, 
like I'm not alone in this process because it's really a process, right? Even when it's travel or whatnot, it's still a process. So there's this idea that you quit your job and you start to travel and then everything else is ponies and rainbows. And ultimately, like you're still human. You know, you haven't, if you haven't dealt with your shit, you're still going to have to deal with it, even though you're traveling. It's going to follow you everywhere and then it's going to follow you home. And there's this misnomer in the way people talk about travel overall and, and digital nomadism, I think, because I still think there's a really deep personal obligation to try and be of service in whatever way you can. And the easiest way to do that is through the prism of your own experiences, right? So through the fear, through the anxiety, through you, Brendan, wanting to share this beautiful concept of, you know, positivity through adversity, those are the ways you, you affect change. And being honest is, is, I think, or as honest as you're comfortable being without being fully ashamed about it is <laughs> probably the, the nuance to hit. You know, it is really nuanced, but what's kind of that line for you between, you know, sharing and being vulnerable and oversharing and, and maybe revealing things before they need to be public? Is that a thing that you've kind of processed through? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Because some of the things I've written about are quite personal. It's interesting too, because it really depends on what personal means to you and, and what, what are the things that are your kind of the, the boogeyman that keeps you up at night. You know, for some people, it's something very different. There are people who've said, wow, that post on Vipassana, that was really, you were so vulnerable. And to me, it really wasn't. Like it was a really overwhelming and transformational experience and stressful experience. But nothing in that was something I would, I look back on and be like, ah, wow, that was a mistake. I think that's how I try and look at it. I think like in five years, am I going to look back on this and be like, that, that was a boundaryless problem because I'm in grief or this was a problem because I'm not, you know, really processing properly? Or is it something that will actually help people? So I, again, to go back to Brene Brown, right? She talks about stories that people will receive to help them and then stories that they have to earn. And, and that's the dichotomy I think that's important for everyone to figure out for themselves because that's deeply personal. Like some people write about their dating life. For me, I never have. And it's really not something I'm comfortable sharing, not because it puts me in a bad place per se, but because it's just not the, it's not something that'll push my work forward. It's not why I do what I do. So that's, that's been kept off the site. And I'm sure people are curious, like my the Google autocomplete uh, when I was at a conference in like 2000, I don't know what year it was, but someone's like, do you know the Google autocomplete for your name is Jody Edinburgh boyfriend followed by Jody Edinburgh age? And I was like, what? <laughs> so I, people were curious, but that's I'm going to look at mine right now. I'm not going right to, but I'll look at it later. <laughs> <laughs> there was an amazing site. I don't know if it's still around called Google Poetics. It was really, and it was the most existential, heartbreaking poetry built solely through autocomplete like actual autocompletes, not algorithms. And it was just like, oh, it was, it was perfect. It was one of my favorites. I think um, for, for sharing versus not, it's a deeply personal decision. And so much of what I do, to me, the meaning comes from, I wrestled with this thing and I'm stubborn AF and figured out a way to make it better. What if I wasn't that stubborn and wanted to give up? How can I help those people? And that's, that's probably what drives me. It's not about feeling significant. It's not about the validation of it. It's just about why go through this and have the ability to write, if not to help other people who are going through it. 100%. I mean, I had a friend challenge me with that recently, talking about this idea of if you're sharing something online and it doesn't have a person in mind when you write it, uh, then what's the point? And and I like that idea of kind of thinking about the things that I share online, whether it's a tweet or an Instagram caption or a blog, whatever it is, um, thinking about, okay, how can I imagine just one individual person who this could impact, who this could help? And when you write it like that, first of all, it makes the writing process so much easier. But second of all, it it changes the way that you you leave out things that would be kind of more egotistical or would be more, you know, just for myself. And you include more things that help people feel less alone and help people feel more courageous or brave or empowered. And I don't know, it, it changes the way that, that I've written about things. And I don't know, it's been really helpful for me. I think that's, that's an interesting way to look at it. I mean, there's, um, 
there's something valuable in something that would interest you that may not interest someone else that you know of, right? Mm. As well. Yeah. When you share online, if you find value in it, authentically find value in it, um, and you share it, even if there's not someone that you've built sort of a case study for, I think it's still worth doing because there may be someone out there that you're bringing in uh, who you wouldn't have thought of in the past. But yeah, I do, I do think that the the way you've you've structured it, Ben, sort of filters out the stuff that would just kind of be gratuitous in the end. I wanted to take a quick break from this conversation to tell you about the sponsor of this week's episode of Sounds Good, Hover. So I've been using Hover domains to host brandonharvey.com and goodgoodgood.co and a bunch of other domains for the longest time. Their platform is simple to use. They're a trusted brand when it comes to my privacy and they offer hundreds of extensions to choose from. I want you to put your passion online in the same way that I have with Hover. You can go to hover.com slash sounds good for 10% off your first purchase. Also, for aspiring or serial entrepreneurs, we've got info on a really great conference to attend. The event is Fireside Conference and Hover is a proud sponsor. It's an off-the-grid, invite-only event taking place a few hundred clicks north of Toronto the weekend after Labor Day. feels really cool to say clicks. Oh my gosh, I love that. The conference is packed with VCs, startups, tech enthusiasts, and more. Check them out at firesideconf.com. That's firesideconf with like (laughs) C-O-N-F. And you can get your website launched with Hover and be prepared to pitch your awesome business at Fireside Conference this year. Okay, now back to the rest of our conversation. You know, I I love this idea because I feel like this is something you truly have done so well. And uh, I mentioned this before we got started with the episode, but when I look at the comments on your website, and when I look at the comments on your Instagram, people are, are truly connected at the heart with you. You know, they've... I would imagine many people have been following you for a decade, um, you know, five years or more. Many people may have just encountered your work, but you share so authentically uh, with the work that you do that I think that they just instantly felt that connection. And most notably, you have a recent story um, about a spinal tap that you had. Um, And it seems like this has gotten a great deal of attention. This is what kind of inspired me to reach out to you. I've, I've been, you know, visiting your site and, and finding little articles that were helpful for me here and there through the years, but reading this most recent story really drew me in and it was really powerful and also heartbreaking, honestly, to, to kind of hear about what you've been going through. And so I'd love to talk about it a little bit because I know that it's altered your life significantly, but I'm also so inspired by the way that you've that you've shared this so openly and helped other people feel less alone and also just helped more and more people understand what's going on. And so maybe we can start at the beginning with, you know, you showing up at the doctor. Sure. I, I mean, it's a, it is a crazy pants story and the times I've had to explain it, like the TLDR version is still crazy pants. There's just no way around it. Um, in how I, I joke, it's not a joke, but I, I say that it's almost biblical in its intensity because it's just like it, everything is so extreme. Yeah. And I suppose I've never lived my life in non-extreme ways. Like I shouldn't be so <laughs> shocked. You know, my, my best friend was like, for one second, Jody, I just would love you to be boring. Um, <laughs> and this, was, this was after everything had happened and um, that I, I almost, I almost uh, died during the last surgery to, to fix this, which I will explain briefly. But she was, that was when she said, Jody, really, like, can we just do normal for a hot minute? <laughs> um, the, the, the version of it, I mean, it's, there's, there's so much I haven't yet shared and I'm slowly putting together a post about 10 years of legal nomads and I'm sharing a bit more, but there's the actual facts. The facts are, I, I had terrible, terrible symptoms that were extreme and not something I would ever, I mean, I I presented to the ER in New York, like I know what that costs and and I had insurance, right. But like, it's still crazy pants expensive, no matter what. And I wouldn't have done it unless it was something extremely different and scary. 
And yeah. you've gotten like sick and had all kinds of experiences through the last decade. And so you knew that this was something that you're like, oh, I need to go to a hospital. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a hypochondriac and I'm also pretty, it's fun, when they ask you the pain, you know, the, the McGill pain index of like, how do they, and I'm, I'm always like, I don't know. I'm always in pain. I don't, I've had chronic pain issues for years. I've written about it. So it ha- it was something very extreme. Otherwise I absolutely wouldn't have gone um, and, and something new. And they did a spinal tap because they were concerned about a brain bleed. And they used, at the time, of course, I did not know this, they used huge needles, 18-gauge needles, which when I told this to the doctors who ended up fixing the problem, they were just, they were so shocked, they called the hospital to be like, what were you thinking? But apparently for people my size, and I am like 100 pounds soaking wet, uh, you should use much smaller needles because you run the risk of a cerebrospinal fluid leak, which is basically the sheath that covers your spinal cord is called the dura. It's like a thick membrane. It's a dense membrane. And when you have a leak in it, it's, it's a very difficult thing to fix. And the way to fix it is, is pretty Victorian. They basically inject your own blood and into the epidural space around it. And they think it stimulates like all the white blood cells to come and, and fix that area up, but they're not positive. That's like, it's, it's the doctors that I went to see in eventually that fixed this. were like, we know that every, there's a lot of unknown in this situation and they are the best in the world for blood patching. So I went to the ER, I presented there. And when I got back to the apartment and I was cat sitting for a friend in New York city at the time, uh, the place had been robbed while I was at the ER. What? Oh my God. <laughs> so I came back and a friend had come with me and I was in incredible pain because uh, the spinal tap was really painful. The local anesthetic did not work and uh, multiple tries to get to the spinal fluid. And so I came home and then I had to, we had to call the cops. Um, and you're, are you like walking around at this point? Are you in a wheelchair? What's kind of that situation? I was lying on the couch, but of course with the adrenaline hit, that came in, I don't remember. My friend said, I, I mean, I didn't do anything crazy to like run around, but I, I did have to talk to the police and fill out the police report, which was excruciating um, that evening. And of course, I felt tremendously guilty. My friends had trusted me to look at their place like, after their cat and I go to the ER and it's, it's not like I didn't lock the door. He had come through the fire escape through the window in the back, which the, the detectives had, when they came over, had then said like the security in that building generally was really terrible and they weren't surprised he'd been probably scouting the building. However, there is a, a very crazy gift in this, in this part of the story, which is that we have a screenshot from the guy who came in because my friends had a nanny cam. He came in through their kid's room and he's wearing a, a face mask, a ski mask and gloves, and he has a white cloth in his hand. And it matches home invasion rapes from Brooklyn, like the description exactly. And I, we don't know, right? No one knows exactly what the police did say. Why did he take so little? Like he just took, he basically used my own day bag to take all my stuff and some of their stuff and leave. And he was like, they left, the police said they left all this stuff. Like, I don't understand. And I was like, I don't know. And then my friends and I looked at that screenshot and went, oh, that, that guy was not here to rob the place. Mm. And Number one, you know, every woman's worst nightmare, but also yep. let's just put a pin in this for a hot second and discuss how I traveled the world for 10 years by myself with no issues. <laughs> and this happened in New York City. In to New York all, City. To all the people who were like, wow. oh, travel is dangerous. Man, and that's such a blessing in disguise because it's terrible that you had to go to the ER. It's terrible that you got robbed, but it's way better than the alternative. And that's the thing. Uh, I didn't share that at the beginning. And honestly, Brendan, that messed me up bad. Like I still hmm. have trouble with that aspect of it. Yeah. It's, just, it's terrifying. And I had to stay in that place for two more weeks being completely incapacitated until my family came to get me, which itself was, was like a psychological terrorizing activity. Um, and obviously I've talked to someone about it. It's like, it's, it's extreme enough. This whole situation is extreme enough, but uh, I will say two things. One is that that, insanity of of those kind of sliding doors moment of what had happened if I stayed home I firmly believe as you said that if I had stayed back it would have been way more destructive for me and knowing what I know now about you know this whole process I just I feel very lucky 
number one, that I wasn't home. And number two, that I, I had that because I, I see all these people I have now come into contact with, with chronic CSF leaks from a lumbar, lumbar puncture. And they are just consumed by their bitterness that they decided to have the procedure. And I understand that. I mean, they basically, the rest of their lives so far have been ruined by this. Because it's, it's essentially a doctor's mistake or a, 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 at least a policy within the hospital that caused, the, that caused this problem for them. Is that why? Well, I mean, there's different reasons you can get a leak. Some people have connective tissue disorders they didn't know about. Some people just had, like, had a resident do the puncture and they did a really bad job. Um, some, there, there are other reasons, but it, but it was like, they decided, they agreed with the doctor's advice to get it, to test for something and that, and they've never forgiven themselves. And in my case, you know, I agreed, I, I, I was not informed of the risk of a leak. Like this is not something any of us really seem to know. Um, but it's more that I don't regret the decision because of the other unfolding insanity of this circumstance. And that's a huge gift because there's no healing in bitterness and it would have been an incredible process to try and get over that hump of my anger and bitterness. And I didn't have to, uh, because at no point do I think I wish I hadn't gone to the hospital that day because I'm very grateful. I went to the hospital that day it also has a lot to do with the posturing of your heart. You know, I, I think that somebody could be in the exact same situation and they could also be bitter. And so I think that it says a lot about who you are and the life experiences that led up to that moment that you were able to look at that. And instead of saying, I have the worst luck in the world, all of these things are terrible. You said, this is a, this is a blessing in disguise. Well, I want to go back to my readers for a second too, in terms of blessings, because uh, again, so much of this, they call themselves leakers. The leaker community. Which is a, probably a thing that you didn't know existed did before Did not this. know. Did not even know what the Dura was. <laughs> I'm learning what this is right now. <laughs> um, it's actually pretty interesting. I mean, how much I've had to learn, obviously, is, is extraordinary because yeah. these days, as we all know, we have to be our own advocates. Um, I've really you know, pushed back on a lot of the allopathic stuff in getting better and tried to let my body get back to a place where it remembers how to heal as well. Obviously I needed the patches and to finish that part of the story, I guess I'll go back to the readers in a second to finish that part of what happened. I ended up fighting to get into Duke, which is in North Carolina because they have a CSF patching specialty. One woman named Dr. Gray basically was like, this is a real problem and we don't really know how to fix it. No one does. And so she pioneered a program and trained doctors and they see like 10 people a day now. Um, people get leaks from epidurals in childbirth when the tap goes too far. It becomes a wet tap from back surgeries, from epidural pain injections and from lumbar punctures. And then there's a subset of people who just sneeze or cough too hard and blow out a leak because they have a, they have a huge connective tissue problem. And it's it's really a shocking thing because you know I went down there I had to he, at first my doctor who was fabulous had said this is going to be easy it's a lumbar puncture we know around the area we're going to patch here and and do you know a, a CT myelogram and test to see what else is going on in your back just in case and it took four rounds of patching twenty two patches in total with both my own blood and fibrin glue and fibrin is basically your own blood, uh, sorry, not your own blood, third-party blood uh, mixed with a protein called a prontinin, and they inject it with this like double-barrel needle into your back. Now, you're totally awake for patching because you have to be able to tell them. Some hospitals don't, but I appreciate Duke does because they tell you, you need to let us know if it hurts because that's when we have to stop because you don't want to damage the nerves. And so you're you're basically under conscious sedation in it. And the team was just stupendous. And I'm so grateful that I went there instead of trying to pursue it anywhere else. Because when I went to the hospital in Montreal, where my family is, they were like, it's impossible. You're leaking. You just have a migraine. And I was like, it goes away the second I lay down. And they were like, no, you, you're, maybe you need some, they were like referring me to some clinic on mindfulness and psychology. I was like, listen, I didn't have this issue until I got a huge needle shoved into my spinal cord. <laughs> but that but that is the case and that is the problem with this issue which is that most people get I think on average it's several years to get diagnosed because they're basically told 
oh no, it's impossible that you have this thing. And I'm grateful that through my website, I had someone who connected me with his girlfriend who had a CSF leak, who put me in this Facebook group. And that's what got me down to fighting my way into Duke for treatment. And it's so cool that you have a big platform where you can share this story as, you know, you're just sharing some of the details of, you know, leaking within this grander story. And so people... I have no doubt have read this and all of a sudden they realize that this is them or all of a sudden they realize that their partner is experiencing this. Like that is so powerful. Yeah, of course. The difficult thing to explain to people about the leaking situation is that it's basically the leak of your your cerebrospinal fluid goes all the way up to your brain and it cushions your brain. It's basically like a, a fluid that it rests on so that your brain is not clanging around in your skull all the time. That's a pretty, it's a very you know, abrupt way of describing it. But when you have a leak, your fluid is low. And so your brain basically sinks into the, into the, your spine. And what it feels like is someone is crushing your head into your spine. And it's as mm. soon as you stand up, but when you're lying down, it's fine. And so I was, I basically had to lay down for months and some people try and, you know, pump caffeine and salt to try and increase CSF production. But I was like, I want to get sealed. I don't want my body to get used to pumping out more CSF and then having to compensate on the back end. And I asked the doctor at Duke, you know, is this a, is my theory doable? He's like, well, no one's ever done it that way, but I don't see why not, you know, go for it. And it's just been interesting to have to explain of how much it, how much of your body it affects. Like this little thing is not so little because it affects, I mean, I have, I have lasting brain injury because after seven months of my brain clanging around my skull, it's basically like continuous concussion, not as aggressive as like a concussion that you're smashing your head, but like there is continuous brain injury by doing that and cognitively and loud noises and other things are still something I'm trying to get back. And there's, and so does every patient that I've spoken to who leaks long-term um, has similar issues, which means it's no cause for panic. And like anything, the brain is amazing at, trying to get back to stasis, right? But it was it's definitely alarming and that it really affects your central nervous system. I mean, having CSF outside uh, the dura just messes with so much. So your muscles are twitching and there's crazy nerve pain. And it was really just, I can't express how bad it was. I really can't. On top of all of the physical struggles, what is it like on more of an emotional level? You know, you spent 10 years traveling and running this blog. And then it sounds like you spend a lot of your time, you know, horizontal and maybe not out exploring the world and trying new foods. That's got to be a really hard thing to get used to. I remember living in my mom's basement during this, the worst of this time and thinking it, it just dawned on me at four in the morning. I just wasn't sleeping anymore. I was so stressed and upset. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm never going to get back out there. Like no matter what happens, the grief for me is not just the lack of travel because that is hard. Right. But I have had 10 years of it and I'm grateful that I did. A lot of people don't even get an iota of the ridiculous experiences but it's also the the grief for for the lack of worry about movement because i haven't bent or lifted or twisted since august 2017 and there's no good data about whether or not it's okay to do so given what's going on in my body like for people who were not dealing with chronic pain before and don't have problems with their connective tissue that's different but i i do have all these problems and there's just no, no promising data, no one to say like, you can do this or you can't do this. So people have re-leaked, for example, because they're on a plane and the plane repressurizes when they land and they blow out a new leak in their dura and they re-leak by doing yoga or they re-leak by reaching down into the laundry barrel to get laundry, let alone the kind of like bumpy colectivo rides and insane motorcycle trips I did while I was traveling. And so it's, it's really hard to understand like where joy comes from now. Yeah. I, I just can't even imagine. During all of these difficulties and all of these struggles, who have been the people in your life who 
you've been most grateful for? You know, what what have your relationships looked like in this time? Because it sounds like you you have some good people in your life. Before I go into the specifics of that, my readers have been this incredible going surface for me that just supported me and kept me afloat when my brain wasn't. I wrote often on my fan page and on Instagram, I mean, often for someone who was like in terrible health and in big crisis. Um, But I tried to share openly, but not, as you said earlier, not openly, but not too dramatically. (laughs) Although it is dramatic, you know, this was an incredibly dramatic situation. Like I received thousands of emails since this happened telling me, hi, you don't know me but I'm so sad about what happened to you. Let me tell you how you've changed my life. Wow. And who gets that, right? Like yeah. To go back to the gratitude portion, who gets that? I just cannot explain how much that helped. And it's unfortunate, right? Because as people, we should get that from within. <laughs> we shouldn't need an external source of it. But like I had nothing. I was bereft of any spirit to keep looking ahead in the fall, like before I went for patching, I really just felt, I don't want to wake up the next day. And I'm just, I can't face a life of lying in bed forever. And this kind of outpouring was just so incredibly integral to keeping me afloat. Part of that was my friends and family. My parents, all, I have four of them. They all went over to me, they say, well, we're just parents. This is what you do if you're parents. So I was like, this is what you do if you're good parents. I mean, my mom and my stepdad drove me down to Duke and they've tried to accommodate everything that I would need to get better. And I really appreciate it. My best friend was happened to be in Virginia when I was going down to Duke and my parents had to leave because my grandfather's quite old as well. And they had to get back and she took over for what was supposed to be one patch and ended up being three more patches. It was actually quite funny, you know, as someone who interviews people who are kind of unconventional. Duke, you know, it's North Carolina. There's probably not a huge hotbed of digital nomads there. <laughs> they were like, how are you still here? Like, where, where are you living? And I was like, oh, I rented an Airbnb and Shannon is helping take care of me. And she was, you know, she's vegetarian. She cooked meat for me because I needed it before patching. <laughs> you know, she's an amazing <laughs> friend. And they were just like, why is she still here? Doesn't she have a job? <laughs> I said, yeah, well, we both work online. We can work wherever. And they were just like, are you guys together? I said, no, neither of us. Are. <laughs> no, <laughs> we're both straight, but we are best friends. And she could t- they just could not understand what the deal was. She was amazing. My friends started to go fund me. My travel community friends started to go fund me against my extreme Yeah, you resisted it, didn't you? So resistant. And I'm so grateful (laughs) for it because to pay for the rents down in, you know, during treatment to handle, I mean, the fees, the amount this costs is astounding to have gotten me better. And even the doctor that I have at Duke, you know, we still text now once a month for me to update him on how I'm doing. During the last patch, well, as I said at the beginning of this podcast or near the beginning, I almost I almost died because the I had a reaction to the fibrin glue that they use. And they pre-medicated me with antihistamines, but it didn't do anything. And and three quarters of the way through the patch, I realized, you know, my throat was starting to close and I was feeling really off and I couldn't see very well. I looked up and my hand my hands, my arms were just fuchsia and welts all over them. And I was like, uh I think something's wrong. And the doctor called for IV steroids to try and bring down the reaction. And I was like, finish the patch. He's like, are you serious? I was like, just finish it. Like, I'm not doing this for nothing. (laughs) Um, Which later he was like, you are ridiculous. Then that didn't work. And so they had to like flip me over onto my back and give me an injection of um, epinephrine, which I've never had before. And, you know, the whole thing was very quick, but not quick. Of course, any near-death experience is like something where people say, oh yeah, time kind of got a little weird. I was just so calm because I kept thinking I have had, I have had all these amazing experiences. I really don't have many regrets in my life. And I, I'm like, if this is it, then I feel like I was enough, which is like a, cr- a really intense and crazy 
experience. And the doctor just thought I was in shock because he was like... You were saying that out loud? No. No, okay. I was just totally, totally calm and shaking uncontrollably because the epinephrine. But even before the epinephrine, as my throat was closing, I was just like, finished the patch. And then they kept... they Once they injected me, they were looking down at me. And I was like, I'm totally fine, guys. I'm fine. You guys are all here to keep me safe. Like, that's all I kept thinking was everyone's going to do their best. And if it's not enough, I lived a good life. It's this release almost where you're, it's kind of like your hands are in the air. You're, you're like, I trust you. I'm giving it to you. And there's nothing else I can do. Right. And, and when we read or talk about, you know, surrender in terms of life, right? Giving into whatever happens and not resisting, you know, there's just so much stubbornness and stress in that resistance to what is coming your way. And we all do it. I mean, it's how we live, a lot of us. And to, in that moment, just really let everything go is probably what kept me alive. Where do you think that that comes from for you? Well, I have written extensively about how anxious I always was. And I think, I think it just came from the intensity of that experience. It hasn't gone away. I think that experience fundamentally changed my brain, not just the experience, but after the, after patching, I went back to, (laughs) we had a, an extraordinarily crazy drive from North Carolina down to Florida, where I was like, I'm not going back to Montreal in the winter. I definitely won't get better there. Um, And we didn't know if the patch worked, you know, we just didn't know anything. And with the epinephrine and the steroids, like my body was just a mess and I was in incredible amounts of pain. And it was really just, there was just not knowing. And it was, I basically spent, you know, six to seven hours a day meditating when I got down there because it wasn't going to help me get better to choose worry over the curiosity of where this could go. And I say that casually, but let me tell you, it was, it took constant vigilance every second of every day to shift my mind back to that state of curiosity or wonder and not to be lodged in this place of total panic because I had all reasons to panic. Like the facts were terrible. I could never get fibrin again. I couldn't necessarily, if I sprung a new leak or if it didn't work, like they couldn't, they didn't know where to cut in to do surgery because none of the patching areas so far, the third patch round worked by the way, but then I sat down wrong and it tore all the patching that's how delicate it is and so on the fourth one this was kind of like the final hurrah my hail mary patch (laughs) um and we and we just didn't know i say we because shannon was the one to drive me to florida and you know had to contend with this meta discussion about how do you build a life that has meaning with the complete obliteration of what you built because you did what you loved it's such a brave thing for you to, I mean, you said that you, you in Florida were spending your time meditating. It's such a brave thing to, to kind of confront this head on because I think it would be really easy to numb this. Whether you're just like, oh, well, I've got to sit on my couch all day. I'm just going to watch TV and not think about this. Or I'm, I'm just going to, you know, take the drugs that are being prescribed to me and not feel this, et cetera. And it sounds like you you're forcing yourself to think about this and process this, but at the same time, maintain a sense of, of hope, a sense of curiosity, a sense of future. And that's not an easy thing. That's, that's a very courageous thing to do. Thank you. I think, I mean, it's really difficult, right? Especially, I mean, I I joke that I'm an anxious person and this would, this would in my in the more curious and creative depths of my Jody brain, could I have built this exact situation of total trauma for me where I can't travel, I can't move. At, at the moment, I can't eat anything that I love because after I went into anaphylaxis, it seems to have triggered a sort of continuous allergic response to food. Um, so, you know, I used fish sauce for every meal and now I can't have it. And they're like, you probably will never have that again. You know, everything that I truly loved is sort of gone. Um, in that sense, it strips away the kind of 
created control that we think we have. And in the end, we don't because the, everything is real chaos out there. You know, you're doing your best. We're all doing our best to try and give order to it. But we just, there's no, there's no knowledge of what's next. And that is just so obvious for me because everything is so extreme in the fact pattern of the situation that it was just like my, the alternative to what I've chosen to do is to basically continuously torture myself. And that wasn't going to help me get better. And so it just took, it took a disciplined choice. And, and I say that acknowledging it was probably one of the hardest things I've had to do just to truly stay vigilant. And every single time my mind drifted back to this panic to move it back to a place of possibility. And, and it's not something that came natural to me. And it still is sometimes something that doesn't come natural to me, but there, there really is this sense of connected wonder to this journey because when I look ahead, like I don't, I don't know what the next thing will be. I'm grateful I can still write. I'm grateful I have this incredible community of people who respect my work and are cheering for me. And hopefully I can help them in how I write. And, and same for people like you who are welcoming me into your community. If I can you know, make someone feel more understood in their trauma and grief than, than, you know, wonderful. But I really don't know what's next. I don't know what my body would be capable of. We didn't know if I'd be walking again. And it's been almost six months since the last patch. And I walked six kilometers a day this week. What? That's beautiful. That's incredible. It's astounding. And you know, I think a lot of that is back to getting my body back to a place where it remembers how to heal. You know, the trauma of what happened, that guy coming for me really messed me up. And it would mess anyone up, of course. But it means that my body wasn't in a state where it was like, we got this. We're going we're gonna to work with you. I was just stuck in this fight or flight place for so long, no matter what I did. And the patch really didn't kick in. You know, within the first week or two, they say, you know, you, you know, either you know if it works or it doesn't, sometimes within 24 hours. And for the third round, I knew right away in the hospital, oh, yes, this got the leak. I can feel it as soon as I stood up. For this, it, I felt leaking symptoms all the way through till six weeks out. It was just so confusing. And there was just no, no real guidance for me to have hope because the facts were showing themselves to be so poor. And it was this incredibly challenging situation to really force my mind to a better place. But that's all I had control over. And that's what it came down to. Like, that's all I had control over was my mind. Everything else was not up to me anymore because my body was doing what it was doing and the patch was done and we couldn't do another one. We couldn't do surgery. This was it, you know? So... People ask me, you know, do you think you you did this with your mind to help yourself heal? What I think may have happened, and I say may because I'm not a doctor, is just that the work with the meditation, the work on calming my mind and like bringing more mind-body connection again, just helped my body get back to a place where it, it actually remembered how to do what it's meant to do. And so in combination with the allopathic stuff, with the patching, which I clearly needed because there were huge needles that were used got me where I am today. And part of the challenge going forward is the understanding that if I leak again, I'm kind of screwed, <laughs> right? Like people who re-leak five years later by sneezing too hard or by twisting the wrong way, like the, having that hanging over your movement is something that's really difficult. Uh, but it's also my reality. And I think the whole part of this I have a family member who every time I say like, I'm what they're like, what's wrong? And I was like, I'm just, I'm having trouble with this thing. And they're just like, but you can walk. And I'm like, of course I can walk. And of course I'm grateful every second that I can walk every morning that I get up and I stand and I don't have my brain dragging into my spine. I feel incredible gratitude, but that doesn't mean I also don't have a ton of grief. When I emailed you and I, I asked you to be on this podcast, you <laughs> Uh, you you said something to me that has really stuck with me. You said, "Hey, if you're okay with with some really messy imperfection, I'm in. <laughs> uh, if not, maybe it's not a good fit." And 
and I'm a huge fan of messy imperfection. And right, you, didn't you interview someone recently who said that too? Yeah, I had uh, Angeli uh, Pinto, and uh, she w- said the exact same thing. And uh, it's one of those things where you know I would love for this episode to wrap up so neatly and perfectly, and for us to say. And what do you feel hopeful about? And you said, and here's where we're going. And here's exactly, you know, the game plan. But I don't have an expectation that you're going to wrap this up in a neat bow. And But I, I also feel hopeful that you will. But I don't expect you to know that right now. You know what I mean? I don't expect you to, to have a game plan and to, to make this feel like a perfect little wrap up so that everybody listening can just feel happy and awesome at the end of this episode. Right. But I think that that's the most connective thing. I don't know about you. I question when things are too perfect. I'm like, that's, there's something off there. You know, there's yeah. just, we are all imperfect. We are human. We are, we are maybe perfect in our imperfection in we are, we are perfect in our flaws, but that doesn't mean that there's like a neat little bundle at the end, right? That makes perfect sense. This story is a little crazy. There's, there's so many loops that connect up, you know, in ways I couldn't have drafted the screenplay if I tried is what I joke. Um, and that is one thing I've not happily lost is my sense of humor. But I think the not knowing is both the hardest part and the most in my face. And I think so much of this is rare and new. Um, the CSF leaks are under a rare disorder. There's so much of what I'm dealing with that is unknown that my choice was to do what I always did and try and control like little slivers here and there or let it all go like I did when this all went down and just focus on my mind and on, on redirecting things toward a place of gratitude and process the grief happily. Um, but when people say to me, what's next, like, what do you have for next? What's on your, what's on tap for the next six months? Someone said that to me. I was like, what, uh, walking, (laughs) learning how to walk again. I don't know. Um, I mean, I just don't know. And I don't think I should know because, everything that's happened has been so outside the realm of a normal sequence. And like I said, when have I been normal? So I will wrap up by, by telling a short story, which is that when I first started walking again, I was on a lake, beautiful birds. The birds kind of kept me sane. There were these huge cranes, sandhill cranes in Florida. And for some reason they didn't mind me walking right up to them and they would just walk right by. And it was just so wondrous it really, those birds gave me a sense of joy that nothing else did at the time. And I met a guy who obviously saw my walking awkwardly and, you know, gently asked what was going on. And I gave him the TLDR version and he shared that he had had cancer, uh, 12 years ago and that he understood what it was like to look down the barrel of a life that may never be normal again, but also a life that may be destroyed again at any time. And he said, you just have to keep your eye on the prize. And I said, well, I don't understand what the prize is anymore when everything that I valued as a goal has been taken away. And he said, the prize is that you're going to wake up tomorrow and it's going to be a better day. That's it. And that's all I look forward to now. Because that's all I can really control is I'm going to wake up tomorrow. It's going to be better. I'm going to try again. Wow. Um, I'm not really sure that there's a way to follow up with meaningful wrap-up words after a conversation like that. I'm, I'm kind of at a loss for words. Jody's story is raw and it's vulnerable and it it speaks for itself and it stands alone. And I'm so grateful for the way that she's made her story available to so many, even while it's left without resolve and even while she's still trying to fully understand it and grapple with it. Her story is happening right now and it takes a lot of courage to be transparent about pain while it's happening. I'm really struck by the way that Jody lives into this truth that through our fears is an opportunity, a beautiful opportunity to help others 
overcome their fears. With that said, you should absolutely be following Jodi on social media. She is incredible. You can find her on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at Legal Nomads. And if you're not already following along with her traveling and food blog, head over to LegalNomads.com where you can dive deeper into her passion and journey. It's honestly a blog that I've been visiting for years and there's so much good stuff there if you are like me and you love traveling. And if you're hearing this episode and you want to support Jody in this moment, you can search for her name on GoFundMe and support the GoFundMe that her friend started for her. You can also check out Jody's online shop and purchase one of her beautiful hand-drawn food maps as a way of supporting her. She did not ask me to do this or say this, uh, but I just know that as a community, we are all looking for ways to help, and Jody's story is so beautiful and moving. If you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around if you connected with this episode. You'd also love our conversations with Ashley Lemieux and Tiffany Mitchell, both of whom dive into their stories with the same vulnerability and depth that Jody does. And uh, they inspire me so much. You'll love their episodes. You can find both of these episodes and more than 100 other episodes of Sounds Good by searching for Sounds Good wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good, 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 a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. Chad Michael Snavely and the team at CM Studio edit and mix the show, and Christy Karen Brock offers production support. You can get lots of hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at Good, 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 CO. In case you missed year one of our quarterly good newspaper, we have actually made a little bundle for you to get issues one, two, three, and four delivered straight in the mail, straight to you, because, oh my goodness, they are delightful. It's $20 for the bundle, and there are so many hopeful stories inside that we hope will leave you feeling less overwhelmed and more capable with taking on the world. Check it out and see what else we do at Good 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 by visiting goodgoodgood.co. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Go out and remember that the choice exists every second of every day to choose hope instead of the fear of whatever is unraveling in your story. Sound good?